Welcome to episode 13 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Think you know somebody who might be interested in checking out the show, share this episode with them. Tag them on social media, send them an email with the link, or just tell them about it. You can see all of the shows by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. I'd like to share a resource for the week, Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors. TAPS offers compassionate care and resources to all of those grieving the loss of a military loved one. Since 1994, TAPS has provided comfort and hope 24-7 through a national peer support network and connection to grief resources, all at no cost to surviving families and loved ones. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran military family suicide. We'd also like you to join us on our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. One of the things that those of us who have lost somebody by suicide know, but we don't often talk about, is that suicide has a cyclical impact. Lives are changed after a suicide attempt or a death by suicide, and what we do after is called postvention. Today, we're talking to one of the country's foremost experts on the topic. Shauna, I know that you and Kim are longtime colleagues. Yes, Kim Ruwako, MSW's Vice President of Suicide Prevention and Postvention at TAPS. In my opinion, she's the nation's leading postvention expert. Kim uses her education, personal experience, and information gathered from thousands of survivors to help others more fully understand how to support those who have suffered a loss due to suicide. In my most recent professional chapter, I had the pleasure of working closely with Kim for about three years where I developed talks and trainings to advance TAP's best practice postvention model. Kim is an educator with a wise and compassionate approach that has had an enormous positive impact for an untold number of survivors of suicide loss. Yes, I really appreciated Kim's insight. Our conversation was everything that I'd hoped it would have been. So we'll get into it and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. You've been working in the field of uh, suicide prevention and and having uh, lived experience yourself. I'm interested to hear from your point of view, we know that there are some things that actually work. It's just somehow they're not getting into the hands of the people that need them. But what's Mm -hmm. working when it comes to preventing suicide in the military population? Well, some of the things that are working is is peer-based support and good role models. You know, some of our leaders have taken the courageous step of talking about their own journeys with mental health challenges and suicidal thoughts and sometimes attempts. And I think when others hear that it's okay to talk about that out loud and that it can um, still, you can still keep your career and you can still advance and people still respect you, that's when we're gonna have a change in the tide. And I think we're seeing a lot more people taking the courage to to talk about their own journeys and to role model for others and also mentor others um, and lead them to care. We're also seeing, I think, a lot more active duty service members talking about their mental health and coming forward and asking for help. In, In the veteran population, there's a movement now too of just peers getting together and raising awareness and joining together to really battle this and joining together to check on their buddies. And that sense of belongingness and pulling people out of isolation, I think is a change in the tide too that, that we really need and I'd like to see more of. 
you know, that peer to peer, been there, walked in those shoes. It's definitely important. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I hear you talk about leaders coming out and talking about their experiences, one of the things, and I've heard it myself, it's fine if the sergeant major or the colonel goes out, nobody's going to give them crap for going to mental health. Really, mm-hmm. it's the first line leaders, it's that sergeant or that staff sergeant that you've just spent the last 12 months with. That's the one that we really need to get to having those conversations down at the, the mid-level or the first line leader level. Yeah, and I I do know that the Department of Defense um, has spent a lot of time really focusing on those leaders at that level because they know that. They know that they are critical in setting a culture that takes care of mental health and well-being. But I think where we're getting stuck is that we're still saying, come forward when you need help or when you're overwhelmed or you're having thoughts of suicide. We need to get way upstream and having them talk about mental health and wellness whenever they're in military academies, when they're in boot camps, when they're first coming in for training, it needs to be an integral part of how they train and they need to be given, you know, resources, tactics, and, you know, an expectation that mental health challenges are going to be part of what they're going to experience, that everybody experiences them. Just normalize it. It's part of life. It's part of who we are as people. And especially for our veterans and service members who are asking so much of, You know, the kind of trauma and the kind of experiences that they're exposed to every day, along with just the stressors, we should expect them to to have um, mental health challenges and we need to give them the right tools to be able to help when they first see signs of challenge. You know, that's actually puts me in mind of something that uh, Shauna and I think I had a conversation about this, about that what you referred to was this passive resource delivery, right? You know, Mm -hmm. here it is on the shelf, reach out for it when you need it. When we were in the military and, you know, let's say when I was in Afghanistan, I didn't have to, hey, call fire support when you need it or, or hey, call mm-hmm. close air support when you need it. No, my S2 said, these are your people. That's these right. Are the, this is what, you, you know, right. what you're going to use and this is what we're going to do. Yes. And, and when we leave the military, that, that same thing can be there, but we then shift into a passive mode for resources rather than an active delivery of it. Yes. And by the time a service member gets to the point where they're suffering so much that they come forward and saying, I'm not okay, it's very common for a lot of other things in their lives to be negatively impacted by their struggles, right? Their relationships, their work, their friendships, and other things. And then it's like the snowball effect. So why are we waiting until it's so much of an issue that they they need to come forward and say, I'm thinking of suicide? We've got to get it way, way, way ahead before it's negatively impacting their whole world. Um, And then it's more difficult to recover when you're falling apart in all areas of your life. You know, and that's something that uh, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors uh, very specifically does. I was actually surprised, although maybe I shouldn't have been, when I first learned that a, a majority of the families that participate in TAPS are those that lost families, lost service members and veterans to suicide. And we don't talk about postvention a lot, but postvention is cyclical and it becomes prevention. Absolutely. And so suicide is the leading cause of death or referrals at TAPS. We get three to five new referrals every single day. And we have found that these families come to us in, in an overwhelmed state very unstable and in very high risk for other issues such as suicide, 
mental health issues, reclusiveness, addiction. And our, you know, we've developed a model that can actually provide an intervention that not only stabilizes them, but gives them a roadmap towards integrating grief into their life and finding post-traumatic growth. And this is a critical concept, this, this idea of being able to do postvention as an intervention, but also a pathway to growth after suicide. Whenever there's a critical incident like this, it's really an opportunity to look at that incident and take it and do better, the same way we would with an aircraft crash. But unfortunately, historically, we haven't really done that. Postvention has been really a last minute scramble and people don't know what to do with it and they don't have a roadmap so they fall back to prevention efforts which are warning signs risk factors and a resource right and when you do that you actually may be increasing risk because what are we doing when we're saying risk factors and warning signs we're talking about all the things you missed and so those people that have just lost their loved one or lost their battle buddy to suicide are now being told this is what you should have seen, and this is what you should have done. So that increases guilt, increases regret, increases the feelings of, I should have done this and this is my fault, and therefore increases risk. So at TOPS, we've understood this in our survivors, that giving them a pathway, doing good postvention protocols can actually provide healing and hope and post-traumatic growth. And that's applicable in military units and VA clinics and other places where there's suicide as well. You know, and, and that's, again, I think I've, I've heard that, but I, maybe I hadn't conceptualized it before. It's like trying to give someone, you know, vehicle safety classes. This is how you use a seatbelt after a fatal car crash. That's right. Immediately after, I mean, maybe in the future, yeah. yes. but immediately after it's like, really, I, did I need that? You know, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm hurting over here. So you mentioned the, the TAP suicide postvention model. I wonder mm -hmm. if you would maybe talk through that and we could dig into that a little bit. Sure. Um, thanks for asking about it. I'm really proud of this. It's been a decade that we've been working on building a model so that we can really work with families and military units and small groups to say, there is a way to get through this and, and here it is. Because I remember when, when my husband died by suicide 15 years ago, I was overwhelmed. I was a clinical social worker. I had had this incredible loss. My boys were eight and 10 at the time. And I really didn't know where to start. And I was desperate for someone to say, I survived this and this is how I did it. So the first phase really of the model is stabilization. And it's really to go in there and do three things. There's three tasks for every kind of phase of the model. The first one is to identify trauma and get people connected to treatment for trauma. According to the DOTSER, about 76% of suicides in the military happen either in the family home the barracks or the workplace. Think about that. Who's finding those bodies? Who's witnessing the deaths? So assessing for trauma and connecting um, those individuals with good trauma treatment is essential in the first phase. The second piece is assessing for mental health and suicide risk. We know all those exposed to suicide are at increased risk for suicide themselves. We've got to ask the questions. Are you thinking about suicide? If you are, do you have an intention um, to die by suicide? And if they do, getting them to connected to really good care to come up with a plan to keep them safe. And then the third phase is really addressing suicide-specific issues. 
there's a whole bunch of issues that come along with suicide that can, if you don't address them, if you don't clean them up and get them into a healthy space, will interfere with a healthy grief journey. Things like, um, why did this happen? So educating around why people die by suicide and the suicidal mind, helping people let go. There's also lots of issues around spirituality and religion, how to talk to children in a healthy way, uh, family dynamics, a whole bunch of things that we address specifically regarding suicide. So again, I can hear that, that if we just start to go into, you know, this is how the warning signs, and then you miss that part. Yes. You know, identifying trauma uh, as a clinician, the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not only a mm -hmm. combat issue, but it's it's witnessing uh, a death. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear this often. We say, you know, well, they were the best of us, or that was my squad leader, or that, right. you know, he was the strongest. He was the strong and, one, right. And if, yeah. and if he could do it, that could be me. Right. And, and those are some very critical points that if we don't address mm -hmm. those, then we lose something. That's right. That's right. And they're critical. And every family, every individual is kind of different on what those issues are. So it takes some conversation in knowing what some of those struggles may be. And that's not to say that you're done with that phase. You know, that phase can, can come up and bubble up over years. And I'll give you a really good example of that. I'm 15 years out from the death of my husband um, by suicide. This last few weeks, we moved out of the home where we all lived together. And it brought up a lot of these questions again, reading letters that he wrote us from Iraq three months before he died. And we're like, how can you write a beautiful, hopeful, loving, connected letter three months before you die by suicide? So we went all the way back to that first phase, trying to understand why he died by suicide. We had to kind of process again. And we, we cycled all the way through the model again, even though or 15 years out from the loss. And then if you hadn't, if all of these wounds were reopened, right, and, and we all mm -hmm. have the, the scars, but if you and, and your boys, if you just kind of avoided looking each other in the eye and you were all you know, hurting individually, that would have made it worse in some ways. And then the second phase is grief work. Yes, and it's not to say that grief work doesn't happen throughout all the phases, but there's kind of three phases that we have in grief work. The first one is to move away from the cause of death and how they died and to how they lived and served. You know, in the military, there's so much focus on how one dies, right? There's these heroic deaths that you have medals awarded for and memorials and bridges named after people who die in heroic ways. So for military survivors, there's this real fear that those last seconds and how they died will wipe out everything they did and everything they achieved in their life. So it's really important for survivors to understand the suicidal mind, why people die by suicide, understand that as a blip in time on the life of that person and start remembering and connecting with the person again before they were sick before they were struggling. And remember the good memories, remember who they were and all they achieved and hold on to that instead of those very few moments. The next piece follows that. Once people can move away from the how they died and focusing on those few seconds, we help them reconnect with a new relationship with that person because love doesn't die, right? And either does the connection or the relationship to the person that you loved. And then lastly, we've got to teach people to have a grief rhythm. So, you know, what do we usually do in grief? Especially, I hate to say it, men. We walk around saying, I'm not gonna break down. I'm not gonna lose it. I'm not gonna fall apart. 
What we teach is that grief is love. And so we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it, feel it, express it, and then take care of ourselves. So for example, I started to tell people around me, you know what, sometimes during the day, I can feel the grief kind of building up. In those times, I need two minutes. And I would go outside, I would have a good cry, and then I would, you know, go for a little walk, take a deep breath, and then I'm good, I'm back and I can focus. So giving people the gift of, of telling people what they need, letting themselves feel it, embrace it, and then that helps them go through their day and gets them out of that avoidance mode of pushing grief down all the time and trying to avoid it. You know, and I can see how critical that is. And again, in this stages, right? You know, so you know, first yes. we need to be stable where we're able to actually access it, right? You're, you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to move away from the cause while you're still asking the questions. That's right. But then what you said is the last moments of service members' lives are like these important monumental events, right? You know, when, yes. when we watch the war movies, it's the climax. When we, mm-hmm. like you said, people's last moments are memorialized and monuments and things like that. And so in, in subtle ways, maybe even overt ways, we're taught that the last moments of your life are the most important. Mm-hmm. And then we need to unlearn that. And, and again, and, and this is, again, this journey of the mm-hmm. model is being stabilized and then the, the grief and going through the grief, whether, you know, people may argue about stages of grief, order, but there does become a place of relief, which then leads to that third phase of the model of post-traumatic growth. Yes. And so post-traumatic growth is, is really interesting because when, I, when it first happened to me, when my husband first died by suicide, I thought, geez, everyone's going to think we're this messed up family that needs clinical care that is crazy and that's where it's going to stay. And I think there was this view of, you know, if this happens to a family, they're, they're, they're mentally ill and they need clinical care. But what we found is these families, especially military and veteran families, are uniquely perched for post-traumatic growth. They are desperate to make meaning out of this loss because the death seems like such a useless loss of life. So there's three kind of tasks under post-traumatic growth. The first one is to really think about your story about the death. What do you tell yourself and others about the death? And by the time you're in post-traumatic growth, you want that story to have changed to a hopeful, insightful, educational story that can bring you forward um, and, and be doing something with that loss. And I'll give you an example of that. When my, since I was a clinician, when my husband died by suicide, the story I told myself and others was, I should have seen it. I now say I did the best I could at the time with the information I had at the time. And I'm gonna use that information to save lives in honor of my husband. And that is the difference between the first phase and post-traumatic growth. The second piece is, is making meaning out of the loss. What can you do in honor of your loved one to make a difference because of what's happened? And there's all different ways of doing this. For some, it's going in using the lessons learned on the look back for prevention purposes. For others, it's writing and journaling and sharing that with others. So, you know, finding meaning and connecting it and living your life in honor of your loved one and making meaning out of it is really critical. And then thirdly, people who have been through this kind of an event 
very often, if you're given the opportunity, live a more intentional, connected life because they know life now is fleeting, right? And that you can lose somebody you love in a second. And so there's a depth of connection and love and appreciation of life and everything around you that is possible. So there's a shift in just how we live our lives. Um, a greater appreciation, a greater connection with each other, and a greater understanding of how valuable every moment is. You know, and that puts me in mind, I've had the, the privilege of hearing Urban Yalam speak a couple of times, and of course this is fully existential, right? You know, and, and yeah. he often refers to some of his early work with uh, stage four cancer patients where they said that it's amazing we had to be this close to death to appreciate life. Right. Um, and, and, and that's them experiencing that loss, but mm -hmm. then, you know, someone else experiencing that loss, it's, it's exactly the same thing. And I think for some people it can, especially in one of the earlier two stages, they can't conceive of being in that place in their mind around this which is where TAPS brings in mentors it, yes. and it goes back to where we were talking very beginning to say, I've been in that place in your journey and you can get there. Yes. And those peer mentors become beacons of hope, right? So we have, when we have our peer mentors at our events, greeting brand new survivors and saying, you can survive this. That is enormous for somebody who feels like they can't go on and they can't survive this event. And so, you know, being a peer mentor, it's a dual process. It's reciprocal, right? So that peer mentor now has making meaning out of their loss by helping others. And they're helping others by being beacons of hope. So that reciprocal process is incredibly beautiful to see and incredibly valuable. You know, I see this as an upward spiral where someone goes through stabilization and then they work mm -hmm. on their grief and they have post-traumatic growth and then they turn around and help stabilize someone else, Yes. help them work through their grief yes. and thereby increase their growth, their own mm -hmm. post-traumatic growth while providing yes. that to others. And, and really, again, this doesn't start until, until we start looking each other in the eye. Again, I, I really appreciate, um, and often I think we can talk for hours and hours yes. because this is a very critical and often overlooked uh, yes. part of suicide. And this is when I tell people postvention is prevention and we need to yes. get there. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for including postvention. It's, I'm just so pleased to be able to talk about it with you and, and so proud of how you've taken the subject and gotten so many voices to, to raise awareness. As I mentioned, I had a great conversation with Kim. I think we could have talked for hours and we actually did talk for longer than we were able to have on the show. Kim is obviously very passionate about this. What did you think about the conversation? It was everything I had hoped it would be as well. She hit on so many important points about you know, how to take care of people and how suicide postvention is prevention. I loved your analogy about how it's like giving somebody who's just been in a car crash instructions about how to use a seatbelt. That really brought it home. You know, one of the things that Kim really emphasized was the importance of peer support. And she and I have both served as licensed mental health professionals at one point in our career, seeing patients or clients. And sometimes people ask, which is really more impactful though? Is it 
peer support or professional clinical support. And Kim and I agree that the best response combines both peer support and professional clinical support. For those who have been most directly affected by traumatic loss, negative outcomes may not fully materialize until some time has passed. Immediately after a loss, surviving loved ones are often in a state of shock. People feel numb or disoriented. But then in the weeks following a sudden loss, people often have a wide range of complex emotions. And when that initial shock wears off, waves of grief and trauma images often intensify. And so when these trauma symptoms surface, professional mental health is often needed. There's also something that I call the burst of support effect. The burst of support effect refers to the tendency for friends, family, and professional supporters to reach out in a time-limited burst of support during a time of crisis. The burst of support is a problem because the most urgent needs of survivors may come well after a loss. Many survivors experience a secondary impact of loss when those that they thought would be standing at their side after the loss are not as supportive as they had hoped as their trauma and grief fully emerges. Surviving a traumatic loss, whether due to suicide or an act of senseless violence, requires ongoing support. Time-limited grief therapy is often woefully inadequate to bring survivors through their grief to a place of post-traumatic growth. Achieving post-traumatic growth often requires a transformation of both personal identity and existing relationships. This comes from gaining and cultivating a new set of safe, stable, supportive attachments with peers. Post-traumatic growth is a product of comprehensive, responsive, ongoing peer support. This is why a combination of peer support and clinical support is the best intervention possible to support those who have experienced trauma. Yeah, you know, I think this goes back to a recurring theme is that it's not all on the mental health professional, nor is it all on the community, right? You know, so a veteran has their community, they have their peers, let's say in the VFW or Team Rubicon, or even the Elks Club, right? Not a military focus, but just they have their group of friends, they have their peers, but it needs to be the combination. And, And again, we've said it often, there's not enough mental health professionals like me who happen to be both. However, I serve very much more as a clinician and I don't do the typical things that a peer support specialist does. I often pair with caseworkers in the community who are veterans to provide that peer-to-peer thing as opposed to me being a professional. So I agree, it, it does need both. Yeah. The other thing that Kim mentioned was the Dodser data to show how frequently suicides occur in places where survivors often discover their deceased loved one. In other words, after suicide loss, there's often both grief and trauma. Grief and trauma have many overlapping symptoms, but they're not the same thing, and they can't be treated in the same way. When a person has suffered a suicide loss, they often show symptoms that are common to both grief and trauma. So for example, these may include intrusive thoughts, disrupted sleep, nightmares, intensive physical reactions, strong negative feelings, withdrawing from others, numbness, avoidance, and self-blame. This is what makes it so challenging for providers to tell the difference between grief and trauma. And then in certain populations, as we would probably both agree, like the veteran population, we search for trauma symptoms, but we often fail to recognize and address the grief that underlies trauma. In the population at large, we might send a team of grief counselors to those affected but may miss the extent to which trauma needs to be assessed and treated. TAPS has developed a number of free trainings that are widely available to support 
postvention response planning. For example, a webinar I offered called Suicide, Grief, and Trauma offers insight around the experiences of grief and loss as compared with trauma and describes why trauma must be proactively addressed and treated to allow for a healthy grief journey. Kim Ruwako developed and delivered an excellent course called Grief to Growth, a roadmap to a healthy grief journey as part of the same Boeing Foundation funded series. We also developed several courses that are funded by the NFL Foundation, produced by Psych Armor Institute, that are available to view free of charge. TAPS offers a range of resources, programs, and events, as well as training and consultation for organizations and providers. They're the go-to experts for best practice suicide postvention. We'll add some relevant links for how to access TAPS expertise and free trainings in our show notes this week. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, distinction between grief and traumatic stress reaction, uh, but then how in, like you said, in the veteran population, they are common, right? Because when we experience trauma, let's say the traumatic loss of a fellow service member in combat or the traumatic loss of a fellow veteran by suicide, there is traumatic stress reaction there. And then there's also grief. Yeah. And one of the things is really important that people often don't know is that they really require a different treatment strategy and we're after a long-term goal that's different when treating grief and trauma. Essentially, the short-term goal with both is to get people to approach feelings and emotions that they don't really want to feel. But with trauma, we're trying to help them move through that and move on without that impacting them so much. Whereas our goal with grief is the polar opposite. We want people to actually reconnect with their loved one if they desire and kind of carry that love forward. So we're having them move into and hold on to that connection, whereas with trauma, we just want to help them process it and move on. Again, having to treat them differently and both being present, obviously the complexity, it's not all just PTSD and TBI. You know, it is comprehensive. Definitely could have a lot more conversations. Those of you who are interested, I'd love to have you join our Facebook group to be able to talk about that. And really appreciate you taking time to check out the show. Make sure to check out the show notes at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS13, where you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you think about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. While you're at it, check out our resource of the week, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. TAPS provides a variety of programs for anyone grieving the loss of a military loved one. Their National Military Survivor Seminar and Good Grief Camp is held annually in Washington, D.C., and they also conduct regional survivor seminars for adults and youths, as well as retreats and expeditions around the world. If you're grieving the loss of a fallen service member, or if you know somebody who can use the support, the TAPS 24-7 National Military Survivor Helpline is always available toll-free with loving support and resources. You can find all of the work that they're doing at www.taps.org. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. 
chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.